Okay, what I want to do this morning uh, as we go to our disciplines is just to give you a brief update on the Hantlas and the Dodds, and then to allow that to feed into our time of talking about our disciplines this morning. Uh, I think the very latest is that uh, Matt and Cameron are still waiting for uh, prognosis. They went in and had surgery earlier in the week, and um, Matt is recovering, and they are waiting until Wednesday before they will be able to know the full extent of the cancer that he has, the exact type of it, and all of that. So they're waiting until Wednesday. Uh, they also have some other doctor's appointments with other oncologists, other cancer doctors. Um, after that, that will be even more telling and more revealing. Um, we praise God that their spirits are well, that Matt is well in his heart and his mind. Um, and they are waiting. They are waiting and trusting the Lord as they're waiting. And I can't imagine a more difficult thing to do than to wait a week to hear the results of something that um, that you're waiting for that might have great bearing on the rest of your life. So that is the situation with Matt and Cameron Dodd. I would encourage you just to keep praying for them. This is a couple that truly loves the Lord so much so that they would um, forfeit the rest of their life um, and their livelihood and take their life across the ocean to tell people about the gospel. And uh, they truly do love the Lord. So keep praying for them. Um, the Handlers are in a place where they are now considering options for their son, David, that are, include treatment here in state as well as treatment out of state. And um, the treatments are going to be probably more difficult than anything they've had to this point, which has been a true trial for them already. Um, and so we want to keep praying for them. Um, I encourage you guys, if you don't already do so, to try to follow them on Facebook or try to follow their blog posts and things like that because... Uh, that is where we understand the latest, and that's what helps us pray intelligently and, and send encouraging words to them and things like that. So that's the latest on the Hantlas and the Dodds. There are others in our congregation who have had surgeries recently, who have had significant surgeries recently, who are encouraging you uh, to continue to pray for them as well. And uh, the Hantlas and the Dodds are not the only ones who have found themselves in a position of physical weakness recently. Um, the Lord does, does appear to have our church in a season where he is putting things in front of us that help us see um, his true character and his true nature and, and we need to go to him regularly with prayer. So let's make sure we do that. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. And while you're turning there, I want you just to think back to what we heard on Sunday from Matt as he was standing in the front in the sanctuary and he was sharing and you notice that um, God's character and God's goodness and God's purpose and God's plans were, were front and center on display. And there was something that was absent from Matt's vocabulary, that was absent from Cameron's vocabulary, absent from their thinking as they were standing there. And uh, I want you to see this in 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Uh, there's a key word there that's repeated several times. We see it, it's the word fear. And that's the word that was absent from Matt and his presentation and all that he shared last Sunday. As you listened to the things that he was saying, as you were there, as you were observing, what you saw was a confidence in God and God's purpose and God's plans. Um, to be sure, there was grief and there was sadness and there was uncertainty. They don't really know what's around the corner. We're learning more and more every day and every week. Um, but you saw a confidence in what God was doing and what God had already ordained before the foundations of the world. And there was no fear in Matt. And the reason why there was no fear in Matt is because he's been reading this uh, every day of his life for the last 15 years or so. He has a really close walk with the Lord. And, and he's exposing himself to God's character daily, 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 daily. He is reading firsthand of God's explanation to Matt of his goodness and his grace and his kindness and his sovereignty and his mercy and his vengeance and his justice and his love. And Matt is well informed with that. And that is serving him very, very, very well at this time of his life. 
Um, so as he, he looks into all of these things that are happening and he doesn't understand the why, but he knows that all of it is because God is trustworthy and God is working out his plan. So I want you to know that. I want you to turn to one other passage for me. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at the end of Romans chapter 8. This is something that that assures Matt daily. And uh, I know this personally because Matt was in my small group for a long, long time. Paul is towards the end of his explanation of how God saves sinners. And the security that a sinner has after God saves them And I'm going to start reading at verse 38 of Romans 8. There's several verses before that that say a lot of other encouraging things as well. But um, for the sake of time, I want to read these two verses. Paul writes, and he's telling the church in Rome, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's just look at the first of those long list of things that Paul is convinced of that does not separate us from the love of God. And what is that? That is death. And here is a man who has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. Um, He knows what the odds are. He knows what the numbers are and the percentages are. Um, But in that, he knows that even this will not separate him from the love of God. He knows this. Um, He led us through a study of Romans when I was in a small group. And uh, I remember him teaching on this. And and, uh, it was very powerful and very strong. And I know he believes this. Um, So once again, I just want to help you understand. And and I know that we all know this. But this week and these last couple of weeks have brought something into focus, which I think is good for us to remember. And that is that the reason why we encourage all of us to to be in the word, um, to be consistent with a reading plan, to be consistent with a time meeting alone with the Lord in prayer, is because we need that. We need that every day of our lives. And this room is, is full of men who've had more trial in their life than I have, and I know that. There's men who've had more years than I've had, and there's men who've had different trials than I've had. But I can tell you that every one of the trials that God brings to us, he is able to meet us in those trials with assurances from his character as we inform ourselves of that character by reading his word and by praying over his word and confessing our sin and, and uh, living out a biblical pattern of repentance in our life. So I want to encourage you guys to stay faithful in your reading plan. Stay faithful in your devotional life to the Lord. Um, remember the disciplines, that it starts with you caring for your own heart. Um, when there's a trial that comes into your household that might not be directly at you, it may be at someone around you in your family or someone very near you that you love, you are ready to step into their life well with truth about God and his character. You can take that into whatever ministry the Lord gives you whether it's at work or whether it's here, whether it's in your small group, uh, whether it's any other place, you are ready. So um, this is what we need to do every day. This is what we need to do every week. We need to keep ourselves freshly reminded of God's character. So I want you guys just to remember that. But I'm blessed by what I see with the gods. I'm blessed by what I read with them, also with the the Hamblas as they walk through their trial. They're, They're showing the same thing, a confidence in the Lord and his purposes. Uh, even though they don't know what's coming around the next corner. All right, this morning, uh, what I'd love to do is is talk with us a little bit about uh, Discipline 2, uh, shepherding the home, and we're going to zero in on the marriage relationship, and I hope to do so in a way that has impact for you who are married, for those who don't want to be married, and for those who... Uh, would like to be married. Hopefully, if you are married, you're not in the category of not wanting to be married, just for clarity's sake. Um, But I want to zero in, in the context of marriage, to the issue of love and what love looks like, especially from the example of Christ. And then from there, I want to zero in to an application of love at the level of communication. Uh, You and I know that we're Words are many, sin is sure to follow. And if any man can tame the tongue, he is a perfect man. Um, probably the, the person you interact with the most and sin against the most at the word level is your wife. And if you're not married, you will soon discover that that is most likely the case. And so what I want to do from thinking about marriage to thinking about love to thinking about love in communication, I want to end our time today thinking about a very particular communication phenomenon that tends to happen and and offer some correction to that. 
and I'm going to speak from my own failures and my own um, examples in this this morning. So uh, let's start just by thinking about marriage itself, and I want to turn your attention to Ecclesiastes 9.9. And we were, of course, in Ecclesiastes uh, over the good part of this last year, and I can't get away from it. This is the encore to the encore of Ecclesiastes. I just want to rehearse again Ecclesiastes 9.9. This is a verse that I like to read uh, when I uh, perform weddings uh, for people. This was a verse that was read at my own wedding uh, back May 20th of 2000. Ecclesiastes 9.9 is a remarkable command in an enigmatic section of Scripture. Right, Ecclesiastes is this... A twisty, turny book that takes us through the malaise of life in a God-cursed, sin-scoured, broken world. And yet this bright beam of light of God's gift and kindness shines through in this imperative, this command for joy. Ecclesiastes 9.9, command. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which God has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. In the midst of the curse, in the midst of living and toiling and laboring in this life which is fleeting, like the steam up the top of a cup of coffee, you can almost get a hold of life and then it's gone. So much of life is a grasping after the wind. God has given a sweet, even an unexpected gift The gift of marriage and the gift of enjoyment in life with the woman whom you love. And and just by way of reminder, um, in spite of Solomon's example, this is one of those do as I say, not as I do. Singular woman with a definite article. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love, whom you love. Uh, That is a, a word of heartfelt commitment and affection and sacrifice will develop this idea of love a little bit later this morning. Um, but a, a remarkable picture from the pen of Solomon. At the end of his life, no doubt filled with regret at the way he did not live up to this very command. And yet recognizing God's gift to us. This is probably one of the, the greatest bits of practical advice uh, that a man can have in life. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the greatest preventive medicines for all kinds of ailments. In this same section, um, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Uh, work is commended, enjoyment is commended, food is commended, love and marriage is commended as gifts from God. And if you and I knew how to take hold of the sweet things, the sweet gifts, the the kind enjoyments that God gives to us in this life, remember, they're not everything. They're not ultimate things. Marriage ends, eating and drinking in this life end, work ends, and all of them are under the curse. All of them are tainted and affected by sin. And yet, there's a kindness of God in these things that is intended to be an appetizer for us for eternal enjoyment in heaven. That's what those things are for. You and I could get along so much better in life if we learn to grasp onto those things which God freely gives for as long as God gives them and enjoy them for what they are. Not enjoy them for more and not fail to enjoy them, but enjoy them as God's good gifts. Right? An impetus for us to worship him, um, to receive by faith those things which he as our gracious heavenly father loves to bestow on his children. He doesn't want to give rocks and snakes to his kids when they're asking for bread. He gives us far more than we deserve. And I I think far more than we even know how to delight in. And marriage is one of those things. I just want you to take a few moments this morning and consider the high privilege and the sweet gift that your marriage is. Or anticipate the high privilege and sweet gift that marriage could be for you one day. How often do you give thanks to God for your wife? How often do you articulate and enumerate specific things that you are thankful for in your wife and in marriage as an institution to God or to her? Do you say these things out loud? 
Marriage is a sweet gift. We really ought to treat it as an unexpected kindness. Wow, I don't deserve this. God, you're so kind to me. And now let's shift gears to the task of a husband in marriage. And and, and we think about the task of love. We think about the task of love for a husband, for his wife. What is said here about love and marriage is general enough to be applied to other relationships as well. Uh, Those relationships that are closest to you, those people that God has put in your life. If you're single and you have roommates, how should I be treating those under the same roof? Uh, If I have children or I live with siblings, how ought I to relate to those whom God has placed in my life? And just because I'm, I'm talking about this in the context of marriage doesn't mean you get to tune out uh, if you're not married. I want to think about the task of love, and, and we're going to use these classic love in marriage passages with Christ as the example to think about what your task is, husbands. And you've got some blanks here. Let's turn first to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. And verse 25. And I'm going to need some volunteers. So the first one to get to Ephesians 5.25 gets to read it. And then I'll need another volunteer for Philippians 2.1-6. And then Romans 12.10. And 1 Corinthians 13.4-7. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, that he might sanctify her. Okay, 26, sorry. Yeah, I'm not one to tell somebody to stop reading the Bible, so it was okay. But you win. You were on the spot. That was was quick. Now, husbands, love your wives. And no doubt you've encountered this word love. This is a highlight of the New Testament vocabulary, very rare outside of the New Testament in first century Greek literature. It is that word agape. Uh, or agapao, the verb form. And, and the idea is a selfless, sacrificial, self-emptying love modeled after the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's not just the vocabulary word that tells us that here. It's the example that Paul is developing in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Oh, she's so cute. I just love how she makes me feel and she does so much for me. Is that how Christ loved the church? No, not like a junior hire. Infatuated with some passing fancy. Christ died. Jesus gave himself up. If we're to fill in the blank here, Christ, like love, dies to self dies to self. This is a costly love. You know, Paul doesn't tell us how Christ loves the church in this verse. He, he, he just leaves it as he loved the church and gave himself up for her. We sort of have to fill in what that meant. He went to the cross, despised Rejected by the creatures that he had made and was sustaining. Hung midair between heaven and earth, between God and man. To satisfy the wrath of his father on behalf of his enemies, whom he was purchasing to be his friends. Husbands, love your wives like that. You know, we, we think often in terms of marriage as, as a give-and-take relationship. Well, that's not the kind of love that's described here. It's a give and 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 give kind of relationship. This isn't, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's just keep scratching. This is an impossible calling, husbands. I, I know you feel that. And yet this is what is before us. This is the command. This is what we aim at. This is what we strive for. And we do so dependent on Christ, modeling after Christ, pleading with Jesus for help in this, failing and confessing and repenting, as you guys were talking about this morning. It's a tall task. 
What else do we pick up? Philippians 2, 1 to 6. Who's got that? Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Denny on uh, Sunday morning shared communion or uh, taught this passage to lead us into the Lord's table. And I've never preached Philippians 2. I've been too scared. Uh, Denny wasn't scared. Walked a a razor's edge between heresy and God-glorifying Christology. Did you feel that? Did you feel the tension? Like, oh no, what's he going to (laughs) say? And he was right on. But, but this text is almost scary in what it says about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Being in the very form of God and yet taking on the form of a slave. In his very essence, in his very nature, never stopping being God, but emptying himself. What does that mean? And I thought Denny explained it well. Christ dispensed with the free exercise of all of his attributes as God. And he didn't need to grasp after equality with God because he was equal with God. He was God in the flesh. And we see in Christ this abject humility that is not grasping after what other people think about me. Grasping after his own reputation didn't need to do that but emptied himself for the sake of love in humility for the benefit of others and these staggering statements. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. When did you or I ever really do that? You have to remember that Philippians 2, the the point Paul is making is is not uh, to stop at an exalted Christology. It is that. It may be the richest place that we see in Scripture of an explanation of what it meant for God to take on human flesh. And yet Paul's point here is, Christian, be humble like Jesus. That's the point of Philippians 2. That's Paul's sort of sermonic point in giving this extended, exalted Christology. Christian, be humble. Think about your day up to this point. Is there anybody, and you don't answer, you don't have to answer this out loud, but is there anybody that you have considered more important than yourself? Just to this point in a given day. Why am I doing what am I what I'm doing? How am I spending my time? What are my activities? What what's going on? It's hard for me to fathom. A day filled with self-emptying others' interest. Why? Because I tie my own shoes. I, I, I put my Cheerios in my bowl and I eat them because I'm hungry. And then I do the next thing. And sure, sprinkled in there, I want to serve my wife. I, I may help her with an activity. But is my life consumed with what's best for that person around me? What's best for that person around me? What's best for that person around me? That's the command here. Again, this impossible command and yet the thing we are to aim at, to set our lives toward. And it is so counterintuitive. It is so against the grain of who we are and what we are naturally. I had a friend and a mentor who, uh, when he was trying to help his kids think about others, consider others more important than the the kid was the me monster in a given moment. You know, the me monster. Uh, All I can think about is me right now. It doesn't matter how many people are in the room. Well, he would say, son, stop. Count. And his son knew, oh, 
dad wants me to count the number of people in the room. And he'd have to stand there, you know, seven years old and go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> count all the people in the room. And it gave him enough time to pause and remember he's not the only person in the universe. Much less this present room. It's a whole other step to say the other people in this room are more important than I am. Is that really what we're supposed to do? Is that what love looks like? Is that what humility looks like? That's what our Savior did. That's what we are to model our lives after. So thinking back to enjoy life with the woman whom you love. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, consider your wives as more important than yourself. With humility of mind. Not looking out for your own interests, but the interests of her. All right, Romans 12, 10. And okay. Give preference to one another in honor. Here, this one another command isn't primarily about marriage, but the most significant other in your life would be your wife. Obviously, this has a, a broader application to just believers. And the command here is give preference to one another or outdo one another in showing honor. What does it mean to prefer another? Give preference to another. I have an opinion, I have a thought, I have a desire. That other person has a thought, opinion, desire too. Time for me to yield. But even to take it a step farther, I have an opinion, and and they're voicing their opinion to prefer one another might be to yield in this situation. How about, I don't know if that person has a different preference than I do. What if I ask them? Draw them out. What if I query the other opinions in the room and find out if the way I'm thinking about something is the best way or even the only way to think about such a thing? Do I have this selfless mindset that has eyes open to the needs and preferences and desires of others around me? Do I have eyes for this in my own home? And then the command here is to outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, you want to get in a fight with your wife, do it this way. (laughs) Fight with her over preferring her. No, I want to prefer you. No, I want to prefer you. No, I want to prefer you. How about 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7? patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Thanks, David. Yeah, you can fill in the blank there with all those things Paul just said about love is and love does. And love does not. But I'll highlight four of them for you. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. And love is not provoked. And the reason I want to highlight those four is because we're going to move into the realm of communication. Patience and kindness are essential aspects of quality communication. If you're one who seeks his own or is easily provoked, those are landmines in communication. They will destroy communication. They will destroy love in our words. As we move towards considering the application of love to our communication in our homes, uh, I, I recognize that everybody's different. 
maybe, and, 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 and couples are different. Maybe the last time you had a strained or difficult conversation um, with your wife was months ago. Maybe it was this morning. Maybe you had five this week, or maybe you have five a month. Wherever you are on the spectrum of how hard these conversations are, the, the reality is, unless you're mute, you have sinned and will sin in this area. And you can sin even if you're mute. Conversation's hard. Speaking is a trap. Why? Jesus said, out of the mouth comes the things that are in the heart. Right? The, the mouth is sort of the broadcaster of residual depravity in the human heart. Stuff comes out. And stuff tends to come out in our closest relationships. Where we're comfortable and our guard is down. And, and we don't have to always keep our teeth brushed and our tie cinched up just right. But we're loose and comfy and more easily offended, more easily provoked. Things come out. And some people, when there is a strained relationship, shut down. Some people, when there is a strange relationship, a strained uh, relationship, elevate tone and volume. Some of you are lawyers. And the goal is to conquer my opponent, and you can outwordsmith your opponent in a conversation. And some of you are married to lawyers. And you have to resort to other tactics to win. I want you to think for just a few moments about that last hard conversation you had with your wife or someone close to you. Do you remember what it was about? Do you remember how you thought about what you... Man, if I just would have said this, I could have won that point. Or do you think about... Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. What I want to do this morning is think about love and what we just talked about in love, specifically applied to communication. And before we get to the, the four passages we just looked at, I, I want to rehearse some Proverbs as well. Uh, because to, to love our wives well in conversation is going to mean to chase after wisdom in the way we talk. And so let's scan just a few Proverbs on speech. And Greg, could I start with you? I'm going to volunteer you for uh, Proverbs 10.19. And we'll just make our way down the aisle across the back row. So, um, just sort of follow consecutively there. And Greg, whenever you have it, you can read that nice and loud. When there are many words, transgressions, and unavailable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Okay. What do we learn there? Um, this is occupational hazard for anybody that preaches or teaches, right? <laughs> Where, where words are many, sin is unavoidable. So, restraining your lips is wise. Um, I think there's something there for us to remember in conversation. To prioritize listening. Prioritize listening. We often put a premium on our thoughts coming out through what we say. What I say is the most important thing that anybody's going to hear in this conversation that's a temptation for some. Okay, how about 1218 then? There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Okay, yeah, contrast there. Uh, some perhaps unskilled swordsman in a crowd flailing. Uh, that's what rash words are like. Uh, harm, destruction. Stitches are required. But help comes through wise words. Healing comes through wise words. Matt, how about 15.1? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up. 
Okay, do, do you know this principle in life and in marriage? Gentle words de-escalate a situation. But oh, it, it's almost imperceptible when someone raises his voice and mine's there too. I, I didn't even realize it. And I'm not being heard the way I want to be heard. I know what the problem is. Volume. Oh, I know what the problem is. Um, my opponent needs to see that stern look on my face. The, the, the opponent needs to feel the gravity of my position. And it just... The opposite's true. You can de-escalate a situation, deflate tension in a conversation with what? What does the proverb say? A gentle word? It's really a kind of a fun social experiment sometime. If you can get outside yourself in a potentially tense conversation and just sort of test drive gentleness... No, you should do it for the glory of God and for the sake of love and selflessness and care for the other person. That's why you should do it. But it's really interesting to watch. If you lay down in front of an opponent, they have no one to swing at. Now, you don't do that to manipulate a conversation, right? Pride can get in there real quick. Um, but you do that for love, humility, and, and watch what happens in a conversation. Now, when tensions are building, it's really hard to get outside of yourself and prefer the other. Think that your opponent is the most important person in the room and seek for God's glory and their good in this conversation. That's hard. Sometimes it takes that simultaneous praying. You pray while you're talking or pray while you're listening. God help all right where are we at what's the next one uh 15 28 alex is that you 18 two a fool has no oh 20 i had 18 okay you can read 18 two that's fine we'll go back to matt back to matt for the other one go ahead alex 18 two is a fool has no delight in understanding but in expressing his own heart Thirteen is he who answers the matter before he hears it. It is a folly and a shame to him. Okay, read verse two for us again. There, there's something really important here that we need in our conversations. The fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Okay, so this is the negative side of things. A fool does not delight in understanding. What's the corollary to that? The wise man fill it in. Delights in understanding. You're in the middle of a hard conversation. What should you be seeking? Okay, while they're talking, I need to be formulating my next argument so I can win. Sorry about the tape. If you're listening on tape, I just pounded the recorder. No, what should you be doing when the other person's talking? Delighting in understanding. In a conversation, just make that a goal. Isn't that a great way to prefer someone else? I want to understand you. Not, I need to be understood right now. How do two people that are fighting to be understood ever hear each other? Fight to understand. Right? That's the self-emptying, self-dying, others-focused love in a conversation. All right, and Alex, what was verse 13 again? He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. Okay, this is why seeking for understanding is really important. You answer before you hear, you'll be shown to be a fool. How many, how many times have you done that? Do you, do you feel the weight of that? Oh, man, I spoke too soon again. <laughs> All right, Matt, let's go back to you. What was verse 28? The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the 
mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Yeah. I, I have a friend who's really good at this. He's my next door neighbor with a sagging tree. I talk about him behind his back, apparently, more than I intend to. <laughs> he ponders how to answer. Think about it. Be thoughtful. How much better is it to spin things in your brain first before they leak out than to just say the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, how I wish these communication principles were abided online, in social media. It'd just be great if Twitter as an organization just posted proverbs like this emblazoned on the front page of the website. That'd be great. All right, how about 2920? Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Thanks, Todd. Um, what is the lesson there? If you want hopeless conversation, foolish conversation, be hasty in your words. It's just the destruction of conversation. Destruction of love in communication. Just, Go ahead. Find hasty a little bit. Hasty, fast. Um, I, I'm rushing into saying what I want to say. I move in haste to the next comment. All right, let's think back through the, the four love passages we looked at, and let's think through what does a conversation governed by love sound like. Okay, remember Ephesians 5.25? What was that one? Mark? Yeah. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Dying to self. Right? Self-death. <laughs> what does that look like in a conversation? What does that feel like? It means learning to crucify my desire, my demand to be understood immediately. It means crucifying my desire to have my way. It means crucifying my desire that this conversation go the way I planned. If it's a conversation, there's two people with two plans, two desires, two preferences. And death to self means, man, i got to put to death this me monster in this conversation. Okay, what about the Philippians passage? What was the point there? What, what did love, what did humility, what did Christ-likeness look like? Regard one another more important than ourselves. Yep, my wife is more important than me. My wife is more important than me. My wife is more important than me in this conversation. My wife is more important than me. My wife is more important than me. But for Jesus, for him, it looked like not grasping after that which was, he was entitled. Yeah. And we're not entitled to the kind of lordship that we think we demand in a conversation. That's the irony, isn't it? Jesus owned it and didn't grasp after it. It doesn't even rightly belong to us and we want it. Thanks, Ben. That's a great point. Self-emptying conversations. Others more important than me kinds of conversations. All right, how about the Romans 12, 2 passage? What was the point there? Twelve two. That's not the right verse, is it? Twelve ten. Sorry, guys. You have to correct that on the sheet there. Yeah. So if there's a contest in this conflict, the contest ought to be, can I outdo my wife in preferring her in honor? Right, the corollary to that is, I dishonor my wife when I'm trying to win. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. What were, the, what were the points there? What, what does love look like? 
It's patient, it's kind, it doesn't seek itself, and it's not provoked. Yeah. Think about it in terms of a conversation, in terms of communication. It doesn't seek its own. It isn't provoked to go further. It isn't easily offended. Uh, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It says about love. And love is patient. Love is kind. The ESV uses the word irritable instead of provoked. Mm. And I think that like provoked can sometimes be like, eh, but irritable. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would. I would never. I would never get provoked. Right. I'm just irritated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny what we do. All right. So, gift of marriage. What a sweet gift God's given us. Be thankful. Prize it. Enjoy it. It's an appetizer for heaven. That's the way God designed it. What a sweet gift. You don't deserve it. Go be thankful. Contemplate love. Your task, husbands, in marriage. And let's apply love to our communication. That's all great in the laboratory, right? It's all great in theory. You've got notes. It's on your paper. Uh, On the other side of this, I've given you some room to color. Uh, I didn't provide crayons, but uh, it'll be monochromatic for you. Um, I want to attempt a couple of illustrations to consider a a temptation in conversation that that often happens. And and I would call this polarization, polarization, where we end up um, in a conversation being farther apart than we actually are because of the ways we fail to prefer each other and love each other in a conversation. And what I mean by that, I'll try to do this a couple of different ways. Okay, we'll give you this numerically. Okay, and the numbers don't really mean anything. It's just a way to think sort of linearly about what's going on in a conversation. Um, let's say that you have an idea that starts right about there, and and your wife has a counterpoint. Hmm, have you ever thought about this? And you think, oh, no, I mean, out of hand, that is the silliest thing I've ever, ever heard of in my life. In fact, it's so silly that I don't, I'm not even going to state my position here anymore. I'm going up to here. And what does your wife do? She's like, whoa, you just like went farther down the scale. I'm, my position's not here anymore. I'm, I'm going over here. And, and now this idea is way more radical. And in order to bring your wife back to where you think she needs to be, man, you're loading up over here. And then this idea to her is so extreme and so ridiculous, it's not even what you think. And she's loading up over here. And what have we done? Filed for divorce. I mean, what, you know, the, 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 the trajectory of this conversation is hard to recover. Because when we were right here, we did not seek for understanding. Wife. Interesting counterpoint. Let me draw you out on that. I, I can't quite feel what you're feeling in that. Can, can you explain that to me a little more? Ask good investigative questions. Your goal here it is not to get your wife over to your spot necessarily. It might end up there. The, the goal is the glory of God. And love of my wife. And I know you're thinking right now, what if this is an issue of truth? We want truth. Okay. Um, sometimes we go there, and it isn't that. You've got to be very careful that you're not slotting your preferences, even your convictions, under the banner of truth. Inviolable right and wrong. We tend to do that. Um, we can someday we can have another conversation about doctrinal truth and timing on when somebody must believe everything that's absolutely right. 
right? And we can even have the conversation about um, how patient is God with me? Do I have everything right in my own life? And is it necessary for me, is my role in life to make sure the people around me believe everything exactly like I believe? Is that my God-given task on this earth? Maybe, maybe not. That's a conversation for another time. If we take in terms of uh, maybe another illustration here. You're thinking in terms of blue. Your wife's thinking in terms of red. Maybe the answer that you end up at, that's the, that's the right answer or the right course of action or the, the right preference or the, the end solution is, is purple. And your wife's version of purple has too much red in it. What are you going to do? I've got to add more blue. Instead of running to purple, you're running to blue. And, and what is your wife thinking? Wow, his purple has too much blue in it. I've got I to add more red. And the more red she does, the more blue you want, the more blue you do, the more red she wants. The, the phenomenon, maybe I'm only speaking to myself here. Um, no, I'm not? Okay, Ben and I can talk about this. The rest of you can listen in. Think about a theological conversation. Um, man is responsible Man responsible? We have a lot of Bible verses. Man's responsible. For what? Well, for believing, for evangelizing, for obedience, for persevering. There are all kinds of texts to describe our responsibilities in the Christian life. And you say, well, yeah, but what? God is sovereign. Now, Think about why was I wanting to say God is sovereign in response to Smedley saying man is responsible. What is it, what is it in me that, that wants to emphasize that right now? It could be, oh, poor Smedley. His theology is arcane, weak, sickly. And he cannot survive without a robust understanding of God as king over all the universe. And so I needed to remind him that God is sovereign. He is overstressing human responsibility. Maybe. I'm so concerned about the glory of God that God's sovereignty is, is, is threatened by Smedley's emphasis on human responsibility in this conversation. Wait. If God is so sovereign, he can be dethroned by one person emphasizing something? No. <laughs> it's not like I'm the imperial guard upholding God's sovereignty as if God can't uphold it himself. Does that make sense? So I need to ask the question, why am I emphasizing the opposite of what my friend is emphasizing right now? And this, is, this holds true in preaching. You know, the pastor's job is to explain the text on a given Sunday. And some people listening to a text, think, oh yeah, but this other passage, oh yeah, but this other doctrine, oh, but there's a counterpoint to this. Guys, be careful with that. This text that we're looking at today wants to say something. And whose text is it? It's God's. And he has something to say there. You can't run away from something God is saying simply because God says something else that complements it somewhere else. Right? There's a time and a place to give all the complementary data. But we have to be very careful that we're not eviscerating a text by running to every other text. Right? This is a hermeneutical conviction that bears out in the way Scott Maxwell preaches. And I was offended by it when I first came, just to be very honest. Scott was preaching through the Gospel of Luke. I'm here about two weeks, and I said, you know, really humbly... Went into his office. <laughs> Said, Scott, did you know that the, um, the parallel gospel accounts say that there were two demons? And Scott said, oh, man, I've never read Matthew before. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Scott Maxwell is, is the humblest man I've ever been around. And he just patiently said, you know, Smed, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think there's probably a place to... I love gospel harmonies that 
put all the accounts together. I, I think there's a place to do that. And, and I just feel compelled that uh, for whatever reason, we're, we're, we're preaching through the gospel of Luke. And God penned Luke the way he wanted Luke to be penned. There's not going to be a contradiction between the accounts. They're, they're reconcilable. Um, but God wrote Luke the way he wanted Luke to be written. And, and, and by God, that's what I have to preach. And I went, oh. <laughs> that's compelling. And we tend to polarize in conversations over theological things because we've got our counterpoints. And... Listen to the way this conversation goes. Everybody in this room, I hope, believes that man is responsible to share the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. And, and how will people hear unless they preach? How will they preach unless they go? How will they go unless they're sent, etc.? Um, God uses human means to bring people to himself, Right? Nobody comes to faith apart from hearing words about Christ, either on a printed page through Bible translation or a good book, or in person verbally through preaching or discipleship or open-air evangelism or a relationship over time where the gospel is shared. Um, God uses means. So who's responsible for the salvation of people? You are. And who's responsible for the salvation of people? Well, God is. So if, I, if I'm saying, guys, we, we need to be sharing the gospel with people in our workplaces. And you say, well, yes, man, but God is sovereign. My temptation in that moment is to pile up all the evidences for human responsibility in evangelism and show you text after text after text. Now, this person who just said, yes, Med, but God is sovereign, that little but indicates he, he agrees with me about human responsibility. And he wants to say something else. What I've done by running to more mountainous evidence for human responsibility is I've run away from my brother in the conversation. He was this far away from me a minute ago, and now we polarized. What if instead I say, yeah, yeah, God, God is sovereign. Um, what, what makes you think, think of that right now? What's on your mind? What's on your heart? Is there something in the way I presented human responsibility that makes you um, think that I, I, I'm not cognizant of God's sovereignty? Is, is there a way I'm saying it wrong that's not helpful? Go to your brother. Go to your wife. Instead of polarizing the conversation... Empty self, die to self, try hard, and this is hard work, to put yourself in the other's shoes. Seek for understanding. Draw them out. And often what happens is we were usually closer than we thought we were to begin with. Who knows what just happened in the other person's day leading up to that conversation. Any conversation, in one sense, is a clash of worldviews and experiences you don't see coming. I haven't been walking in my brother's shoes. I haven't been walking in my wife's shoes. And none of you should do that. Walk in your wife's shoes. Metaphorically, but not... Whatever. I don't know why my brain just went there. Um, it's hard to get into the shoes of another person. But we must. I think it's a way to love my wife, to honor God in a conversation. Goals in conversation are often this. I, I want to win a point. I want to conquer the other person in the conversation. Or even, I've learned some things in Build today about better conversations. I can't wait to go home and fix my wife's conversations. <laughs> These can't be our goals. God, I want to honor you. I want to lead with love. God, will you fix the way I communicate? Seek to listen. Seek to understand. Empty self. Die to self. Prefer the other. These are the ingredients and fuel for love in the way we communicate with each other. Any questions? Thoughts? Uh, I'll let you know in about a thousand years. 
You know, I'm so glad you said that, Matt. I, one of the things I so look forward to about heaven, and, and you know we will soon be in heaven longer than we have been here. You know that, right? It's like right around the corner, and it will seem like, what was that earthly life? Do you remember? What was that thing? It's kind of blurry. I so look forward to conversations where two human beings, still finite, we will never be infinite, right? Um, but still finite, but perfect, glorified human beings who cannot sin, who have no more residual depravity to fight, can talk to each other with understanding, with no misgivings. You know, you, you see poker face and you think, I know what they're thinking, and you don't. <laughs> and you assume the worst in the motivations of the other, and you always assume the best about yourself. All of that's gone. And we just get to freely converse. Man, how fun will that be? Yeah. Sorry, I have a question. Go ahead, Jess. So, um, how do you balance out, as a husband, you're called to lead. So you always want to prefer your wife, her, her desires are important. <coughs> but sometimes you, you look like, you know, you she's walk over you as she wears the pants type of feel. How do you balance that so that you can lead her to a Christ-like home? Yeah, I would suggest one resource for you. It's Alexander Strauch's book, Leading with Love. Um, and, and he tackles that question uh, better than I, I could just off the cuff. Um, every, I, I would refrain from giving a general answer. Um, because some marriages and some situations probably require some input on both sides where we get together and we ask good questions. Paint a picture for your home. What do conversations look like? Wife, how are you doing glorifying God by following your husband's lead? And husband, are there things in your leadership that make it difficult for your wife to follow so she feels like she wants to wear the pants? Right? There's some things we have to examine, and it's sort of case by case, and you've got to dive in. Um, but I would say a husband can glorify God no matter whom he is married to. You can do it right, and you can lead with love, and you can prefer her. Um, you can love her as Christ like loves the church, no matter the state of her spiritual condition, no matter the levels of her obedience. And the onus is upon you, husband, to do that, to honor God. Even if all the rest of the world be liars, you honor God. And, and, and I can't tell you how many times people have come in for counseling and said, hey, pastor, can you fix my wife? Well, is she here? No, look, but we can work on you. Okay, but, but what I came in here for is I need tools and implements and, and weapons and arsenal to, to go attack my wife with. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. You're compromising, Pastor. My wife needs to submit. Uh, I would have counseled your wife not to marry you. <laughs> you know. So, um, to the husband, I say, read struck and lead with love. So, the, again, there are caveats to all of that. It, it, they, you, you can't, you know, what, what, what is love defined by? Truth. Right? A, a love that compromises God's truth isn't really love. Right? That's an important caveat. It's not like, well, my wife prefers Buddhism, so we're going to put shrines in our home. <laughs> right? I can't go there. Um, What's the last name of the author? Strauch. S-T-R-A-U-C-H. And the title is Leading with Love. Ben, thought on that? Stretching in the back. Yeah, no, I... I was, I was thinking about what you said about we can very your example of having a conversation with somebody where I mentioned man's responsibility in evangelism and they immediately take a, an opposite position, seemingly opposite, but God is sovereign is trying to draw them out on why, what other conversations have they been having? Mm -hmm. um, they might fully agree with God man's responsibility in evangelism. And you know, they might have been faithfully proclaiming the gospel over and over again in the workplace, and every single time this week they've been rejected 
vehemently, and they they need to run right now to the encouragement because they've been faithfully evangelizing that God is sovereign, and and that, that there's a reason they may be grabbing for that comfort, and they had no intention of taking an opposite position of you. And I assume that they've aligned themselves against what I'm saying, and I'm going to defend that, but it might be exactly where you're at, and just making sure that you know that. So. Yeah, I and and what have I missed when I do that? I've missed the opportunity to care for somebody who needs help. And I've turned it into a theological argument. What did I do that for? I think I've shared this with a number of you guys in here. Uh, I was on a mission trip and I had just preached. Uh, I was in the, um, in the church. A lady came up to me afterwards and uh, said, Hey, pastor, smile on her face. Um, what, happens to, what happens to dogs when they die? And I'm thinking, Haha. I graduated from seminary. I got the answer to this one. I know what the Bible says about this. I can bring in all the implications and, and all the appropriate texts and, and, and fill in the blanks for her. She's asking a theological question. I can give her a theological answer. Watch this. And about 13, 13 minutes into my droning on and on, her face is changing. Her eyes are welling up with tears. And she just... And, and she just said, my favorite Doberman pincher died this morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She was not looking for the theological answer or, 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 or a debate about what happens to dogs when they die. She wanted comfort. It was appropriate time for me to express the maybe Romans 8. Listen, all creation is groaning until we're liberated. You know, could easily get to the gospel and biblical truth from there. If I had only said, can I ask you why you're asking? Well, that would have been helpful. And I just ran over this poor woman with truth. Other thoughts, questions? All right. Thanks, friends.